Welcome to the 1505 Club. As always, I'm Dr. David Fowler, and today we'll be talking once again with Dr. Chris Meyer from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Our first episode with Dr. Meyer is still our most popular episode to date, so today we're going to be going back to basics. We'll be discussing cranial nerves, the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system, and nerve myelination. And since I know it's on everybody's mind, we'll even talk a little bit about coronavirus. I hope you're ready to go back to school because this is truly the basics of complex neurology. So without any further ado, Dr. Christopher Meyer. Hello, Dr. Meyer. Thank you for joining us again today. Oh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with um, you. We're gonna we're gonna go back, and since we're revisiting the whole topic of um, HRV and uh, polyvagal theory and that kind of stuff, we're gonna go back for some people and answer some very basic, simple questions, which I'm, I know people have because I've gotten a lot of those questions from people uh, regarding some of the basics. So let's start off with cranial nerves. Let's talk a little bit about what is a cranial nerve and how is it different from a spinal nerve. Well, there are 12 different cranial nerves that are in pairs, and they exit the brain, and they are focused primarily in interacting with the head, face, and then some of the upper viscera of the body and uh, upper internal organs, and they'll reach down, the vagal nerve particularly, down to... Uh, about halfway through the large intestine. And there's something interesting, a great uh, uh, book that I'm working on right now. It's called Anatomy Trains by Thomas Myers. And he goes through the, the embryology of the development of the nervous system and the gut. And it seems that there's the, so you have the spinal, uh, spinal canal or what will become the spine and you have the primitive gut and the cranial nerves seem to be the, the neurocranium or the back part of the, the skull, which is, uh, I'm trying to think, it's, it's not a membranous bone, but it's a, a more, a thicker, thicker bone in origin. And the, the face and the, the gut and the jaw are all membranous bones. And the, and the entire gut is a separate development embryologically. And the cranial nerves seem to be the, the neurocranium's interconnection with the the uh, the the gut system of the body, starting at the at the face and the digestive system. And one of the things I picked up at a conference a year and a half ago was that the one thing that all the cranial nerves have in common is the acquisition um, and digestion and processing of food is what they have in con- in conjunction with each other. So with the, the first one, you know the uh, olfactory nerve. Uh, sense of smell all the way through, you know, sight, movement of the eyes, um, uh, taste, uh, you know, chewing, mixing of food, uh, even to some extent, you know, vocalization is involved in that. And then it goes down through uh, swallowing food, the uh, stimulation of gastric enzymes and juices facing the stomach and intestines, and then all the way down into the small intestine. So, the cranial nerves are, depending on how you look at them, there are they're they're individually fascinating one by one. But if you look back at the big picture, it seems to be how the the back part of the of the nervous system and brain connects with the the viscera of the body. So, and the the connection of that then into social uh, interaction with others and, and mammalian bonding and and pheromones and you know vocalization and, and speech you know, and hearing and reciprocity of mirror neurons in the face, you know, and emotional regulation and all of this interesting stuff kind of all comes together. So, but that's maybe more complex than we were looking for, but basically the cranial nerves are how the brain integrates separate from the spinal cord. So it's like a separate nervous system apart from the spine. 
And so then neuroanatomically, uh, they don't pass through the spinal canal and don't pass through um, the foramen like the spinal nerves do, which is how we influence them as chiropractors. And so they're outside of that mechanism. And yet, as chiropractors, we do find that we can influence them primarily with upper cervical adjustments, which is probably why there are some techniques that only do upper cervical adjustments, because when you have that problem, it can be rather profound. What um, I guess I know, I'm sure we can affect cranial nerves with an occiput adjustment, probably a C1, uh, probably a C2. How far down the cervicals do you think that we can still influence that system? Well, uh, cranial nerve 12, spinal accessory. Um, exists all the way down to, I believe it's sixth cervical, that there are branches that come out. So, so how does it, it basically goes down into, in, through the, through the, the, the upper cord and then exits through uh, C1 through five and then forms and goes back up through the frame of magnum and then down through with the vagal nerve and the glossopharyngeal nerve through, uh, shoot, I can't think of the, the, the frame offhand. Um, but it's basically the, the main vagal uh, frame. And the, I think it's the, the carotid uh, where the carotid artery mm-hmm. goes through. So, and then the phrenic nerve three, four, and five is also in that upper area. And that's, that's almost like a cranial nerve in a, in some effects in that it controls the breathing, but it's not, it's not originating from the brain nuclei uh, that, that it, it starts more in the, in the cord itself. So that's, that's something I've, I've got to dig into a little bit more and just see the regulation of breathing as an autonomic reflex, but also interconnected with the vagal nerve because part of cranial nerve 10 um, innervates part of the diaphragm as well. So, but yeah, I would say from, right. from six up and that's you know, historically okay. from C6 down to, you know, L4, L5 is, is seen as sympathetic, you know, dominant. Um, and then from, you know, C6 above, and and the you know, pelvic nerves are more parasympathetic in their effects. So. And that leads us perfectly into the next question, which has to do with the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Um, so let's talk a little. So obviously, we've got uh, of the cranial nerves, um, the majority of them are primarily sympathetic. However, three, seven, nine, and ten are predominantly parasympathetic, we've always said. And yet one of the unique things about the polyvagal theory is it's demonstrating that the vagus might actually be the one unique nerve that has a little bit of both. And so let's talk a little bit about what is the difference between sympathetic and parasympathetic? Why do we have these differences? And why is it actually important that the vagus can do both? So when we were in school and in the classic, you know, if you look on Wikipedia, they'll talk about the sympathetic being more like a gas pedal, it more stimulates um, and the parasympathetic more like the brake, it more slows. And so it was always the idea of reciprocity of either you have the gas or the brake or one degree or the other. <clears throat> and that model is kind of breaking down to some degree. And Porges is the first one to kind of popularize this, the idea that there seems to be more that you can, you can upregulate both at the same time. You seem to be able to downregulate both at the same time and then have varying degrees of them. And that it seems that the, the vagal or the, the parasympathetic as controlled by cranial nerve 10 effects on the body of that, that mimic downregulation or, or more cons- conservation of resources as the, you might describe it, um, can have a, a more positive in, engaged in self-repair state of, sh- of shutdown and repair versus a shutdown and diminishment and conservation of resources that's more destructive or more of a, a like an emergency break um, versus a gradual breaking. And this is an interesting concept. So Hort just talks about the sympathetic as the system that allows us to adapt to, to change um, internally to the body and that it that if you look at you know ancient you know life forms and, and so forth as it developed, that the earliest ones were sort of slow and steady, kind of like a like a reptile. Uh, most of those don't exist anymore. There's a couple forms that are similar to that, you know, kind of ancient a- animals. But modern reptiles don't quite have that. They're a little more evolved. But basically, the idea is that really ancient life forms had just sort of slow and steady metabolism and, and movement. They were you know largely cold blooded. And they would either either move 
or they would just stop and sit and maybe wait for food to come to them. You know, almost like 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 sponges or filter feeders in the ocean. And as life came out, you know, fishes and so forth, they they'd use this this dorsal or ancient vagal system. And then if there was an emergency, if there was a threat, if um, there was a predator of some sort, what they would do is they would go into the shutdown state and wait for the danger to pass. So it's sort of like lizards in Florida when it gets really cold in the wintertime, they'll start you know, falling out of the trees or a, a turtle will go down in the mud for the winter, you know, and just, you know, hibernate. And this seems to be like the idea of, of either you have food and calories to burn or you don't. And then you basically kind of shut down until food comes by, and then you eat it. And so it's this like slow and steady movement. And then his, in, in polyvagal, he talks about that. He thought that, that the next stage of development was the development of the sympathetic nervous system, which was like an accelerator. And he talks about these things called chromaffin cells, which are, they get the name from their, they have an affinity for chromium. So it's chromium affinitated, you know, um, cells. So if you give it this, this stain, they'll stain a certain color. And so basically what these are is these cells can produce norepinephrine, uh, adrenaline, and you could have an animal that could do short bursts of, of energy to go out and, and eat more, you know, attack and so forth. And so that seems to be the sympathetic nervous system then consolidated these cells into the adrenals, which we have, <clears throat> which are part of the sympathetic nervous system and aren't necessarily connected to the, the uh, uh, vagal nerve. This is more, I believe, just, just sympathetic chain that affects them. And they're basically a enlarged um, nerve ending. And so they're, they're basically the end of a nerve cluster that has a whole lot of secretory vesicles that can produce this hormone on demand in large amounts. And it, it can be dumped either in the nerve ending to stimulate or in the, in the muscles generally, or it can be dropped into the bloodstream and really you know, kick up the whole organism. So it's like an accelerant that could could allow these animals that could do this to be better predators. And so that was the development, of, he would say, of the sympathetic nervous system. And then beyond that, when you got mammals, you ended up with a, a, a variant of the original vagal system arising, which involved the cranial nerves, which was kind of an interesting concept here. And it got into um, some of the movements of the facial muscles, so cranial nerves five and seven, so sensory and motor in the face, and then uh, 9, 10, 11, so glossopharyngeal for formation of, of uh, vocalization of, the, of words. I believe trigeminal facial are involved in that as well. And muscles of the inner ear or hearing certain sound frequencies that mammals produce that, that you know, uh, other animals like reptiles and so forth don't. So mammals tend to produce more higher pitched sounds and the other animals seem to be able to communicate in lower frequencies, which was, that, there's a whole fasting realm in there. And then uh, cranial nerve 10 um, and 11. Yeah, 10, 11. And the the uh, regulation of the internal viscera of the body to varying degrees to elicit uh, social engagement or, uh, or self-repair, self-regeneration to a higher degree. So the idea of the, of the, 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 the original being the dorsal vagal, then the, then the uh, sympathetic, and then the, what he calls the ventral vagal, which is a, again, he proposes is a more modern development of this nuclei in the brainstem that allows different effects to be achieved in the body. And it seemed to be connected to uh, mammalian ev evolution of uh, like a, it's not necessarily a tribe, that would be, you know, humans but the, the, the herd or the, the pack and that mammals had such a long stage of gestation that they, that they need, you know, in birth and, and afterwards to be, be cared for that you need this signaling and, and a social engagement system to allow the, the, the animals to survive. Whereas, you know, the early ones, the, the dorsal vagal nervous system to animals, they would lay some eggs and they would leave, you know, they didn't, didn't tend to their young. The, the next ones, I believe, when the sympathetic developed that there was a little bit more um, like live birth of like, you know, snakes. Uh, I'm trying to think there's some, some animals that, that will lay live young. Uh, I'm trying to think what, what comes to mind here. Um, yeah. I think like some Australian animals and then the, the mammals have a more fully engaged uh, social engagement system 
involving facial expression and um, regulation of, of mood and so forth. And that one, it gave the ability to be a more effective predator um, and to basically go into different environments, you know, colder areas and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, it's, there's, it's, it, he has some really interesting concepts. Whether or not they all hold water is up for debate, but they're filling in some of the gaps in this and it, it seems to, to make some sense. And when it comes to humans, this model seems to explain some of the things that we have observed um, more effectively than the old system. So, and yeah, he talks about there's basically five different states that you can have in this. So, Yeah, it's interesting. When I was a student and I first learned about it, I thought with the whole cranial nerve thing, why aren't they all one or the other? So then I looked at some of the oddballs since there's only four that are parasympathetic. Like, like uh, cranial nerve seven, the muscle of facial expression, as you were saying, mm -hmm. um, facial expression is not necessary for survival. It's used for communication. Um, it's also a, a way of expressing mood. And so it's more interactive, which yeah. it's kind of funny then that you then have that tie in to um, how Vegas does control certain functions. And yet it has that tie into the parasympathetic, which seems to be more linked with mood and things like that. So then our mood, our thoughts, our, those kind of things then affect not just our behavior, but our actual functioning of our organs internally. And that's a rather odd concept, I think, especially for most people to consider that. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very much. But, you know, the idea of, of facial expression, that, that the idea of like a, a, a pet, you know, most people find mammals to be better pets, you know, cats, dogs, you know, and so forth, because they have facial expression, they have moods, you can kind of sense, you know, what they're feeling. Whereas, and again, they have that the, the facial uh, uh, trigeminal nerve supply that allows that facial expression, that, that lizards and, and reptiles don't have that. They don't have facial expressions. And yeah, you don't know if they're happy, sad, or if they want to kill you. Like, there's no, yeah, nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're just, it's just, it's just a blank mask. Um, and so it's just interesting, you know, whether or not, you know, different, you know, pets resonate with different people to certain degrees. I don't know what that means, but, but yeah, that idea that, that, that mammals are generally warmer than, and more emotionally complex than, than cold-blooded animals, than a fish or, um, yeah. Well, and since we're on this subject, um, the next question, and this is for you, Brittany, since you asked me this question, um, has to do with allergies. How are allergies linked with this sympathetic, parasympathetic divide? And how can we, as we're making adjustments and we're correcting things, how can we try to influence that in a way that would have a positive benefit for allergies? Oh, yeah. So, so that looking at allergies, one could, could look at it as a hypersensitivity reaction and, you know, part of it being controlled by the immune system. And there's two different types of immune response. There's the innate and the adaptive. Now, the innate is the membranes themselves and the nerve endings that are influenced, you know, through the bradykinins and, and so forth, the signaling molecules that pre, you know, set the threshold for um, the release of various chemicals in the membranes that will kill um, bacteria and viruses and such. And then there's the, the specific immunity, which is, you know, T-cell and, and antibody antigen uh, related and involves, you know, thymus and, and spleen and, and, and specific immunity to a specific um, set of chemicals. Uh, like a lock and lock and key. So allergies I see as more the non-specific, and I would I my feeling is that that the non-specific innate immune response is probably eighty percent of our immune response, if if not more, in that it's non-specific. It's like pouring boiling oil on the invading you know people invading the castle. It's non-discriminative. It kills everything. And allergies that people usually talk about seem to be that it's the atopic. Uh, hyperactive, almost uh, hypersympathetic nervous system response that the system is really, really on on, on uh, hair trigger. It's just, it like shoots first and, and asks, asks questions later. And that I think is, is within the realm of the vagal nerve working in a couple different ways, but in, influencing the gut, influencing the spleen 
and influencing general level of inflammation in the body, perhaps even through, through liver and, and body chemistry that way. And so if you adjust in a way that reduces that hypersympathetic state, so the body isn't so keyed up, it's going to take more of a threat, more of an insult, more of a chemical trigger to trigger that type of, of domino effect that causes that inflammation. So it's going to take a bigger spark before it lights up the, the, the dynamite. Um, and so that's one way of adjusting. I've found, you know, working with in, in myself, when I started getting my, my lower neck adjusted, so the upper sympathetic nervous system, my allergies went away and it was fantastic. Uh, that's the reason I became a chiropractor because my allergies cleared up after getting adjusted. Some would argue then that to some degree, the, the vagal nervous system has a calming ability on the brain. And there's some indications that the brain itself can set the tone for the inflammation state of the body apart from the nerves themselves. So this gets interesting. Uh, we were talking earlier about the uh, book on, on placebo effects, but in, I think it was 1890, uh, 1894, there was a, a researcher, a doctor in France who called, it was called, I think the cold rose um, response, which is if somebody had an allergy to a flower, if you held a fake flower to their nose, they would have allergic response to it as though the brain itself had learned to react this way, sort of subconscious or unconsciously. So there seems to be some aspect of allergy that has either an emotional or a psychological expectation or a conditioned reflex response to it. And does that engage, you know, or does it shut down splenic anti-inflammation? Does it shut down uh, vagal anti-inflammatory states in the body? Does it allow, does it signal uh, an increase in, in circulating catecholamines, you know, adrenaline and such that you end up with a greater immune response? But yeah, very often as you adjust a person, you will see changes in allergies. But to know which type you're dealing with, is it, you know, the, the, the um, innate or, or uh, specific? And is it, you know, too much sympathetic? Is it too little parasympathetic? Or is it mediated by the brain and, and the you know, midbrain and emotional you know, uh, signals is still something we're trying to figure out. You know, there are, are different methods out there that work with allergies. Uh, you can get results in, in several different ways. And, you know, it seems that I remember when I was a student that Deepak Chopra, you know, was, was new and big at that time, but he talked about his mom flying somebody went somewhere on vacation and her allergies went away and then they were flying back home and they, you know, plane landed and they got off and her allergies kicked in and they were awful. Uh, but it turns out they were in a different area refueling the plane. It wasn't, you know, in their home region of India where, where her allergies were active by a particular plant. It was in a whole different part of the country where that plant didn't grow, but because she expected it to be growing there when she got out of the plane, her allergies you know, reacted. So yeah, it's allergies are, are not just the nuts and bolts and, and wiring, you know, so to speak of, of the subluxation. There's other things going on here that make it absolutely fascinating. So, which I had a straight so, answer, you know, that was simple and easy, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering in your, in your particular case with your allergies getting better, do you think it was due more to a specific adjustment of a specific segment or was it just the overall balancing of your whole nervous system through a series of adjustments? For me, it, when I started, it was, it was my lower neck. It was, I believe C7 that was, I'd injured it, you know, substantially when I was young. I had, you know, bale of hay dropped in my head when I was a kid and never adjusted for, you know, 15 years after that. So, um, yeah, my neck was reversed. It was, you know, the, the, the spinal nerves were definitely stressed, as was the spinal cord, I suspect. And just getting that pressure off was enough to calm the system down. So, um, yeah. And then if a person has enough other stress in one's life, um, I think you can, you, they can reactivate. I've seen that before. And yeah, it, it, Sometimes it seems like when the body is in a highly inflamed state, it can almost develop a reaction to things 
you know, it's like there's a, it's like when the concrete is is wet, you can leave foot imprints in it, and then you know, once it cures, it's it's in there. There seems to be some aspect of of a learned response that happens that I've seen in the nervous system. Yeah, well, we were we were talking stress. before we before we started recording, we were talking about how um, food it seems to influence people with allergies quite heavily. Um, the more processed food they eat, more likely the more allergies they have. Um, I'm not sure why that would be, but um, it does seem like clean eating, natural foods, the less processed, people tend to start doing better. And maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just the conglomerate of things they're picking up, but it's like their body just takes in all these extra additional things. And I guess with processed food, you're getting a lot of in ingredients that you can't even pronounce. And when you put all those chemicals in the body, it's got to, at some point, consider that those are not food and think that it's something that might need to be attacked. And so that could be an explanation, but... You know, some, yeah, there's some some argument that, you know, the number of, of genes in like icorn, you know, wheat, where there's like 200 genes in there. And now modern wheat varieties have, you know, 200,000 because they've added various genes to achieve certain ends, you know, greater frost resistance or, you know, you know shadow resistance of the seed head or various things. And that what genes do is they code for proteins. And if proteins have the potential to be antigenically or immunologically through the nervous system, through membrane uh, active, you know, are you, is modern wheat or modern, some of the modern grains, a, a different substance? So instead of it having, you know, 200 possible things that could, could cause a reaction, it has a thousand times that, you know, and you're just, you're, you're, it's like buying more lottery tickets, you're more likely to win, you know, the more you do. So, you know, there's that question. You know, is yeah. is inflammation? It, you, you you read you know or listen to Dr. David Seaman's work, uh, you know, YouTubers and even seminars. You know, he's a big fan of of chronic inflammation being the root of pretty much all of modern ills, and it's it's part of the modern lifestyle. It's lack of sleep. It's uh, always go 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 go. You know, sympathetic dominant nervous system constantly. You know, very little. And again, one would argue that that in ancient you know creatures and most of human history, we spent most of our time in parasympathetic state. You know, we were with our social tribe and our group. You know, we were generally taking it easy. You know, I was telling somebody that you know I remember from anthropology that most hunter gatherers work about you know three hours a day at that. You know, to gather enough food to to live. You know, we work eight ten hours a day. Um, you know, who had it better? You know, maybe they, they probably had greater social interaction. And the, again, that same neurology of social engagement, that is the vagal nervous system. It's, it's the facial expressions, vocalization, it's hearing, it's listening, it's communicating, it's interaction with others. And the more dynamic and functional that is, the other side of that, you know, it's like the, that's the above ground growth, the, the below ground, the roots of that same plant are the vagal nerve and, and such that go to the internal organs. And if one is working very well and dynamic, pretty much the other one is as well. And so some would argue that as the facial and social engagement system has become rusty and, and atrophied for lack of use, that the other half of that same, you know, coin, the inside is become atrophied and, and, and is breaking down, is no longer as adaptive. You know, there's a, some of the work of Dr. Tom Myers here, I don't know if he's a doctor or not, but anatomy trains, he talks about the concept of kinesiological intelligence, which is, we know what IQ is and and we may have heard of uh, EQ or emotional intelligence, but he talks about kinesiological intelligence. You know, the idea that we need a certain amount of movement in, in, to be healthy, just like, you know, astronauts need a certain amount of gravity or, you know, acceleration to, to keep their bones strong. And we've created a world that motion and movement is no longer necessary. You can sit at a computer for hours on, on end. I remember I was at a Gonstead seminar at Mount Horeb a couple years ago, and I think Josh Lawler had come back from a seminar and they said to, I'm paraphrasing this best I remember, but they said to prevent permanent harm, one should limit the amount of time spent sitting or, or lying down to no more than 23 and a half hours a day. And they, you know, everybody laughed and they're like, no, it's literally possible in the modern world to spend 23 and a half hours a day sitting or laying down, yeah. you know, and it's like, my God, you know, and I think we can spend a big part of our life with our, our social engagement system, our vagal nervous system, just not engaging at all. You know, it's yeah. like if you, you know, if you never chewed your food, if all you drank was, was, you know, uh, pureed food, you know, your, your jaw muscles would atrophy, 
the same thing. I think our nervous systems, to some degree, need that exercise, need that that stress. You know, if they don't get it, then it, it breaks down. And I, it, I think it, it, it you've seen somebody as well, and they talk about you know a, a bad enough physical or, or emotional stress that will actually reflect on their face. You can see it in their face. Somebody who's who's injured, who's damaged, who's hurting. You know, their face gets you know somebody who's been through PTSD. You know, their faces are very unexpressive. You can hear it in their voice, you know, which is under the control of glossopharyngeal nerve as well. Their voice is very flat and, and doesn't have the vocal prosody that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the ups and downs and, and changes in tone and, and speed that a healthy and dynamic person has. So. Yeah. We're, we're probably off topic here. Where, where, did, we, where did we start? Very interesting. <laughs> um, we were just talking about the sympathetic parasympathetic. That's all. But okay. we have one more to cover quickly and then we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> other topics. Um, and that was just um, the topic of uh, myelination and why it's important. We were talking about this a little bit again before we were recording that the importance of why why the vagus is myelinated on above the diaphragm and not myelinated below the diaphragm. Um, and a lot of people just didn't even know what myelination was or how it functions. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little about why that's important. Sure. Yeah, we... we... At that uh, the meeting of the minds here back in Florida, I think it was two, two years ago, we had a big long talk about this, um, walking on the beach with a couple of the docs. And the, the myelination seems to be a, a newer development um, in the nervous system that acts as an insulation and it, it acts as an accelerant for, for nerve signals. So there's a saltatory propagation. Um, so the, the nodes in the myelin sheath, these cells, the Schwann cells wrap around the nerve and they allow the nerve to send signals at a more rapid rate. And the vagal nervous system, <clears throat> the vagal nerve works with acetylcholine, which is a very fast acting neurotransmitter. It works within about 200 um, milliseconds. So, you know, uh, a fifth of a second. And with the myelinated nerves in the vagus, it can cause the heart and the lungs to respond very quickly to change. So if there's a, um, a demand, it can very quickly adapt to that, or, you know, change in the one's environment. And this, I believe, also exists within the spinal cord to a great degree. I think all the, the sympathetic nervous system within the spinal cord has myelinated neurons as well to, again, to spring into action very, very quickly if you have to. The there's various demyelinating diseases, you know, um, I believe MS is most one of the more common ones, but also diabetes can cause this uh, breakdown of the cells. And I remember talking with, I think it was Charles Martin um, in Florida at length about this, but his understanding of the vagal nerve was that it was, or the, of the, of the myelinated nerves were that the myelin is what actually um, acts as the nursemaid in a sense for the nerve cell to keep it alive. Um, and without it, the, the nerve cell can barely, barely function. So that was an interesting concept. <clears throat> but when it comes to myelinated versus non-myelinated, a non-myelinated nerve will transmit signals much more slowly. So a myelinated will send it much faster. So the, the sympathetic's myelinated, the, the vagal, ventral vagal is myelinated. And that seems to go only from brainstem to um, above the diaphragm. So basically the organs that the vagal nerve goes to above the diaphragm is what polyvagal theory states has myelinated vagal nerves that the, that primarily the nerves below that, that are vagal are unmyelinated and they have a different effect. And the question of this now is, is, is this borne out by physiological research? Is it, you know, 80, 20, is it 90, 10, is it 95? we don't know exactly. So this is still being figured out, but the concept that they're teaching in polyvagal is that above the diaphragm is myelinated, below the diaphragm is unmyelinated. So basically the organs, lungs and heart would be in the esophagus would be more reactive very quickly versus, and again, that fits into this idea of social engagement and and being able to respond very quickly, you know, quick and and, and wittily and so forth. You're remembering someone's name and, and engaging with someone in a very rapid, you know, rapport and that below the diaphragm is more slow acting. And it kind of gets in the idea of the, the, the peristaltic waves of, of digestive uh, 
juices and so forth in the stomach and, and you know, pancreas and, and, and gallbladder and so forth are more slow acting. And the idea of polyvagal is that it seems that if that system gets too strong of a signal from the brain in a sense of a lack of safety, a lack of, and then it also is a lack of oxygen um, or just a, a, enough of a threat or scare that it seems to cause that system below the diaphragm to go into a state of uh, just basically lockdown. It just kind of, kind of locks the whole system in a reptilian pattern of response that goes back to the original development of that dorsal vagal nervous system and reptiles that really had, uh, they were cold blooded. So they had a low oxygen demand of their cells. And so that, that safety system that if they had to go lay in the mud for, you know, a while or, you know, under the land of the water, you know, hiding away in the weeds for a period of time, they could do it because they didn't have a huge metabolic demand. And he basically proposes that mammals still have that neural mechanism of if, if an extreme threat, you can shut, you know, almost stop your heart and stop your breathing. Um, but we have a higher demand for oxygen. And so the trouble with that is if the body tries to go into this old pattern, the new developed cells can't survive that for very long and they will actually start to die. And so some of the research they said was if you took a, a mouse and you put it in a, in a controlled setting and you have a, a hawk or something fly over the top of the, of the cage, the animal will freeze, will, will elicit the, the, the ancient dorsal vagal physiology. So its heart will literally stop beating, which the, the vagal can do, or the dorsal vagal can do, and its breathing will stop. And, you know, the hawk, the predator can't see it move at all. You know, even the slightest movement, would, it, would, it would be able to pick up. And so the thing survives. And they said, if you do this with, you know, 10 um, different animals, about nine of them will come back out of it. So they can go into the dorsal vagal state for, you know, a few seconds to, you know, maybe a minute or two, and then they can come back out of it. But about 10% of them can't. And literally that dorsal vagal state will kill them. And so this is where it gets into the, the realm of, of PTSD and, and psychological trauma and so forth that a lot of the mental health practitioners have, have taken hold of, of polyvagal theory is that they see this type of effect in humans. They go through... Uh, you know, roadside bomb or sexual assault, something where they were, were held down, uh, knocked unconscious, you know, this type of thing, abused, and their system went into this dorsal vagal shutdown where this extreme threat was such a threat to their survival that their nervous system, in you know, again, unconsciously uh, triggered this old, old pattern, and they seem to get locked into this. And for some reason, they can't seem to get back out. And that, you know, is there some you know, permanent damage, you know, lack of oxygen, lack of breathing that occurred, we don't know, you know, and how does one re-engage that system? That's the, you know, $64,000 question. Everybody's trying to figure out what brings the state back. And so the, the polyvagal theory would say is that that ventral vagal um, should be able to uh, restore a sense of, of calm, of ease, of safety. Um, but then you get into what, what patterns does the mind have, you know, what, what remnants or, you know, residuals or memories are there, you know, in, in the midbrain that are triggered by, you know, smells or, or, you know, sounds or so forth. You know, it's like these you know, guys went to Iraq and they had a roadside bomb or something, or, you know, saw friends killed, you know, you go 4th of July, these guys want to go out, you know, up, up in the far woods somewhere in the North woods camping away from everybody, because if everybody's in the city is blowing off uh, fireworks, you know, these guys are traumatized because it brings back, you know, painful memories of, of the past. So, uh, and, and in that case, it's now become a programmed response. It appears to be a conditioned reflex. Yeah. 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 And, and there are methods and so forth to, to focus on that. And, you know, you know, thank goodness. But that that dorsal vagal, you know, state, that polyvagal state is is the again, this is all a theory. You know, he's still trying to put together all the pieces of that, you know, and it's just the question is, does this make a better sense of what we observe clinically than the existing you know, theory, which was, you know, gas pedal and brake pedal, you know, here gives it some more complexity. Um, you know, to what degree is the sympathetic nervous system, you know, capable of that type of discrimination, you know, or, you know, does the, you know, he, he differentiates between the, the sub and diaphragmatic and, you know, uh, uh, you know, super diaphragmatic effects, but you've got two vagal nerves, you got a right and left, you know, do they have, 
you know, is, are there four different quadrants? I don't know. You know, and I, you know, we can move one finger, but not the other, you know, we have the ability consciously to control, you know, one, one part of our body. Does the brain have the ability to control specific parts of say digestive system as apart from, you know, endocrine system as apart from, you know, vasculature or I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting stuff. So, yeah, as we're talking about this, one of the, one of the other, I guess, conditions that came to mind that, um, is, is very popular in the press right now, or it has been, um, and now it's kind of falling away, I think, because of lack of understanding, but it has to do with the issue of CTE. Um, and that with these guys who have severe CTE, you see them acting out with extreme violence, either towards themselves or towards other people. Mm -hmm. A lot of them commit suicide. Um, that has to be tied up with this whole vagal thing and the fact that um, with the dysfunction, with the trauma, with the encephalopathy, they now have a programmed response so that their behavior is not really within their control. Um, and yet in that moment, their mood tells them <clears throat> that it's an accurate reflection of reality. And yet we see that they're acting outside of reality. So we see them and go, oh, that guy's crazy, but they're not really crazy in their mind because all of these things are interrelated. And so the in this case, the physical damage has created mental damage rather than the other way around where like the PTSD, it's the psychological damage that creates physical damage. So it can go either direction on this yes. thing. Yes. And that's, that's interesting that, that the vagal, if this hierarchy is that, okay, the base of the pyramid is dorsal, then middle of the pyramid is sympathetic. And then the peak of the pyramid is the ventral vagal. And then, you know, the education and social, you know, knowledge of how to react, you know, within your culture appropriately and so forth is all, you know, higher level uh, developmental it, that depends on all these other ones existing um, that when there's damage, it's like the, the, the top of the pyramid gets broken off, but the middle and the bottom still persist. Um, it's, I had a poster from new scientists for a number of years in my wall, but I haven't talked about this chicken um, that was famous <clears throat> in the early part of the 20th century. I think it was vaudeville or something where they, the thing had gotten its head cut off <clears throat> and they took the upper part of the brain, but the lower part was still intact. And the chicken survived. And so basically there was this headless chicken that lived for, you know, on tour for a year and a half that would peck and you know, do various things, but half of its, you know, its head was basically missing. You know, it was just the brainstem that was still intact. So you wonder sometimes if this isn't what's going on and that they would argue that in polyvagal that what happens is when the dorsal vagal gets activated, it's like having your, your uh, safety brake, you know, on your car stuck on. And so the only way to get the vehicle to move is to tromp on the sympathetic on the gas pedal. And so these are people that whipsaw between extreme shutdown and then extreme like agitation or, or almost perhaps mm -hmm. violence in the pathological state. And these would be what they would call uh, bipolar or persons right. one extreme or the other, you know, you're either all the way on or you're all the way off, you know, because they don't have the, the, <clears throat> the higher levels developed, or is deactivated the ventral vagal. And so that we would say, okay, when we adjust a person, do we allow neural adaptability to allow neural efficiency? Do we allow, you know, perhaps blood flow and nerve flow back to the brain itself to allow it to function at a higher level? You know, it may be like somebody who's, you know, climbing Mount Everest, you know, they're up there so high, they can barely, you know, think to put one foot in front of another, you know, and that's deactivated. And again, that gets into that whole concept of, of oxygen level and so forth. Um, but if you've ever been scared out of your wits, which, you know, kind of the country here has been recently, you know, that upper level, some, some would argue that, that when there's enough threat, there's a reflex where the, the C1 will actually rotate, um, on C2 to a degree, which will have a crimping effect on the vertebral artery. Um, but the blood flow then, instead of going to the, to the, uh, higher levels of the brain frontal lobe will get shunted more into the mid and, and hind brain. And so your reflexes become more hyper, you know, responsive and your mammalian or your, your animal, you know, beast mode becomes activated and you start to basically, you know, act more like an animal and not as a fully, you know, functional human being. And I think we've all been there where we're just not ourselves, but I think, okay, when people go out under extreme threat and go out and buy, you know, the stores out of toilet paper, you know, is this an example of that? you know, that, that the rationality goes out the window when there's enough of a threat. And so that's, this kind of all fits together. 
you know, and how can we re-engage these, you know, higher level functions in our patients and, in, you know, perhaps in ourselves when we're in this type of stress state. So. Yeah, so I was just looking, because um, I was curious about this. So the origin of the vagus nerve is in the uh, medulla of the brainstem, which obviously means lower. So if you have that condition of um, lower oxygenation, which it reminded me of a patient I saw this week that that was exactly the case. That once we did Atlas, it made this big difference. And I had to go through this whole thing, explain to her how her brain was being slowly starved of oxygen. But it tells me the vagus nerve or that, that origin center must recognize this change in oxygen flow to some degree. Um, and then, as you said before, you're correct. It exits um, through the jugular foramen um, and it goes with the glossopharyngeal and the accessory nerve, cranial nerves 9 and 11. Yeah, I named it wrong. I named it 12 earlier, but yeah, it's 11. Yeah, it originates. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just think that's interesting because I've definitely had those patients where we recognize that um, one of their vertebral arteries is, is kind of slow. Um, it's that rotation of atlas on C2 that's mm -hmm. creating that condition. Um, a lot of times I'll ask them things like I'll give them the whole scenario of um, if it affects your frontal lobe, you're going to find that you're a little bit slower at math. Uh, easy math problems seem a little more difficult than they should. You'll sometimes trip over words that should be easy, um, things like that. You'll forget names of people you've known forever. Um, if it affects the uh, occipital lobe, your vision will seem a little cloudy, just a little slow. Your relief mm -hmm. reflexes. Seem... So I go through all that. And usually they're just like nodding their head going, yeah, yeah, I've had all that. I just thought I was off. But then once you fix that occiput, the blood flow kicks back in. I'm still thinking at some level that that um, vagus center must recognize that change and is to a certain effect must think to itself, um, I'm dying, I'm suffocating. And so it must kick into a more sympathetic driven mode thinking that, um, I'm not dead yet, but I'm on my way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it seems to be, you know, if somebody's drowning, they say, don't, you know, go near them because they'll drag you under, you know, they'll climb on top of you, mm -hmm. you know, and because that animal effect, that was, you know, yeah, that, and, and then, it was interesting. They, they talked about a study on rats. I think it was in the polyvagal book where they took domestic lab rats and they put them in a chamber or whatever with, you know, water and basically, you know, threw them in there without any warning and saw how long they'd swim. And, you know, they, they basically drowned them and then saw, you know, how they, how they behaved. And these things could swim for a heck of a long time. It was a little, surprisingly well. And then they took wild rats or mice or the same animals from, from the woods and they threw them in this environment. And what they did is they thought they would, you know, do similarly and swim and swim and swim. So no, they basically went to the bottom and that was it. I mean, they drowned just like that. And they're like, what in the world, you know, what, what's this all about? And they figured, okay, the theory was that they would die in um, systole so that their, their heart would be contracted, you know, fully that they would be fighting, that the that adrenaline would be involved here, you know, that, okay, the heart would be pumping super hard and they died. And when they um, uh, autopsied them, they actually died in diastole, which basically their heart had completely relaxed. It basically stopped beating. It stopped contracting mm -hmm. entirely. And this fit in with this idea of this dorsal vagal state kicks in that it was like low oxygen and, and extreme threat, no safety, that they posited that this reptilian pattern took took hold and shut the organism right down. And the trouble is, okay, if if they weren't underwater, you know, the the, the signal for threat would have passed and they would have started breathing again and and come out of this. But the fact that they were underwater, they couldn't breathe, and you know, they they basically died. And so it's this this idea that you know that 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 the dorsal vagal effect. Is it like an extreme surrender reflex or, or just, 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 you know, passing out and that, yeah, that that's mediated by the, that brain nuclei and it has to do with oxygen and it also has to do with threat and safety or lack thereof. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Is, is it a form of, of brain damage? Is it, like you said, traumatic you know, uh, encephalopathy? You yeah. Know, but, yeah. I don't know if I told you the story before, but I was talking with a guy who was at the uh, the shooting in Las Vegas and he was in the bleachers and he said that um, when the, his, at first he thought it was fireworks and then he thought, why are there fireworks in the middle of a show? And then he realized it was gunshots like a split second later. But he said that in that moment, he recognized that there were two kinds of people. There were the people running around like chickens with their heads cut off 
And then there were the people sitting in the bleachers like um, deer in the headlights, just yeah. frozen. Yeah. And he said he, he made a mental observation of this before his own brain said, okay, we need to like move. So he grabbed the people he's with and he went on. He had a whole, whole story. But then his question for me was, what is the difference between those two people? Are they just genetically predisposed to be that way or whatnot? And I was like, no, it actually is more this issue. It's like yeah. some people yeah. based on conditioning, based on many different factors, either you're parasympathetic and you're the deer in the headlights or you're the sympathetic and you're running around like a crazy person, but you don't even know where you're going. In fact, there was, a, I think on YouTube, there's a video where they did a study on this, where they basically were putting people on an elevator and scaring them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see that there, there are people who try to like karate kick the guy. <laughs> then there's other people who just bolt. And then there's the people and there's a third response. And that was the negotiator. Those are the people like, hey, man, maybe we could talk this out. <laughs> and they start going really fast and they're rattling it off. But those were the three responses was fight or flight. It was either fight or flight. They either fight, they fly, or they try to negotiate. And it was that's very social interesting. Engagement. Yeah, that's, that's trying to social engage or, you know, yep. tell yep. jokes or something to try and, you know, appease the person or whatever. Yeah. So very, very strange. So I know that's, Adam, uh, Adam Farmer out of the UK had a program on Michael Mosley's program guts on PBS. And he did a thing where Michael Mosley had to fill out this personality profile. And then they put a nasogastric tube down into his, I, they didn't say where exactly. I think it was a small intestine. And then they had a, a, a syringe where they injected air into this tube and they inflated this balloon and engaged the stretch receptors. And I believe, again, if it was subdiaphragmatic, then it would be the, the, the dorsal vagal. And in his case, they said certain people, when you do that, this, uh, you know, pain initiation reflex, their heart rate increases. In his case, his heart rate diminished. And they said there's a certain percentage of people where this happens. It's the opposite effect. And they said they've correlated it with personality type. That if a person's, they call it neuroticism, but I think it was introversion. And so if you're... When, when, when stressed and threatened, if you prefer to go, you know, be alone is perhaps that neurology versus if when you're threatened and stressed, you want to go out and, you know, on town or something and go up be around people that has a different effect. And That's interesting. then there's a, there's a whole field, there's a whole section on, uh, there's a book, not a book, there's an article in the New York times, I think it was a uh, magazine in the last year on placebo effect and Ted Kapchuk's work where they're saying that it appears that a placebo responder versus a placebo non-responder, it correlates with the uh, catecholamine O-methyltransferase gene, COMPT gene. And the COMPT gene determines how quickly you get rid of catecholamines. So basically, if you get rid of adrenaline and norepinephrine very quickly, then you like thrilling you know, roller coaster rides and scary movies and so forth. And if you don't clear it very quickly and the stuff stays, sticks around a long time, you don't care for those types of thrilling events and perhaps trauma or stress or pain cause a more lingering effect based on your genetic variants. And there's, there's a valine and a methionine, I think, you know, and there's basically the four different single nucleotide polymorphs and half the population has got one of both. So they're just an average. And then 25% have two of the one and 25% of two of the other. And they have a 400% different um, rate of elimination of catecholamines. So the effect that, that adrenaline and norepinephrine and epinephrine are going to have on you are going to be 400% different depending, depending on the genes, which may shape your personality, which then may shape, you know, what your midbrain is telling your nervous system, which then may shape how your vagal nerve activates in, the, in what perceives as threat. You know, you put wooden sticks on somebody's feet and throw them down a mountainside, they're screaming, you know, murder. And the other person says, yeah, I want to go on the double diamond. You know, this, is, this one's too easy, you know you know, the same event can be perceived completely differently based on past experience of it and just your general personality. You know, are you somebody who likes, you know, skiing double diamond hills or you want to be in the bunny hill or in the, you know, in the bar, you know? So, ah, yeah, this is, this is all bundled, you know, bundled together in complex, interesting ways. So where were we? What was the, even the question here on this one? I don't even know. But <laughs> Well, I, I do want to go with all this because we kind of went there just a little bit, but it's what we were talking about before. Um, since uh, since we're running out of some time, but we probably could do this all day, and maybe we should now that I mean, we're all quarantined. Thing up in the um, but we, we um was the whole issue like we were talking about with the uh, the coronavirus thing and how this plays into susceptibility to the disease 
and the fact that some people you were telling me some of the research and how some people are going to be more susceptible than others. So can you go into that a little bit about since people are worried about it? Um, and I think there's a lot we could talk about outside of that, but just the susceptibility issue. of sure, sure. So, supplements. so the, what I've been telling my patients before the, this thing really came you know, down and everybody got so, so scared about it was pertinent that, that the, the textbook of, or handbook of psychophysiology, you know, 750 pages um, that I read last year, and there's a 15, 20 page section called on psychoneuroimmunology. And in there, they get to the gist of it is that when an organism, if you, if it's a human or a, a rat, if you expose them to perceived stress, so what they perceive as threat for a prolonged period of time, so chronic stress will initiate a change in the gene expression in the cells of the organism to promote bacterial defense. And so the various interleukins, you know, two, six, one, I think it is, they're all the, the, the even ones promote inflammation of the cell membranes and inflammation generally is defensive against bacteria. And so if the, if the, our ancestors going back, you know, however long, when they were threatened, they would respond in an inflammatory state so that when the inevitable bacteria got into their skin, you know, under their bloodstream, because they were clawed or scratched or bit or hit with a, you know, a sword or something that they survived. And so this is kind of hardwired in. So if, and in doing so, the, the nervous system can either go towards external threat, which is what bacteria are, and inflammation of the, of the membranes, or and in doing so, it draws down and doesn't defend against intracellular threats, which are viruses. And so if you're under a ton of stress and you're watching, you know, reading Reddit and, and all the news feeds and everything, and you're, you know, scared out of, the, out of your wits and you're not sleeping and all this stuff, what you're literally doing is you're downregulating your defenses to viruses and you're increasing your inflammatory state. And then the second half of what we were talking about with the, the work that Dr. David Seaman is doing on, on some of his YouTube videos, he talks about the cytokine, uh, yeah, cytokine storm that seems to be the, the, what pushes people over the edge. So like the first six, seven days of a coronavirus infection, you have um, uh, viral particles that are detectable. After that point, the immune system antibodies en engulf them and you end up with enough of them to basically stop that. So you're not really measuring or testing positive. For the virus are not shedding, but you have about a three-day period where in some people there's what's called a cytokine storm, which is driven primarily by interleukin-6. And if you have heart disease, if you have diabetes, if you have uh, a few other chronic, rather inflammatory uh, diseases, which many Americans have, even obesity is one of these, that you're more likely to elicit this type of immune response that's the cytokine storm. And so somebody who's not one of these risk groups, the latest data was that you had about a 1% risk of, of dying from coronavirus. In, I believe it was heart disease, it was like a 10%. And diabetes was like a 7%. And there was one other one there too. But it was basically, you had literally a 10 times as much risk of, of dying from this if you had these pre-existing inflammatory states. And so he's advocating going about changing one's diet to reduce inflammation, to reduce the cytokine, uh, cytokine effect so that you're more likely to survive. And is there time to lose weight? You know, perhaps, but you know, can a person ad adopt some, some lifestyles that change the body more towards viral defense and shutting down this, this cytokine hyperinflammatory response. And a big part of that is to basically calm your mind, you know, find something to engage the vagal nervous system. So I've been doing various things with, I've been studying my HRV levels now for 435 days in a row. And I've found various things. The, the more sleep I get, generally the, the better vagal function, which basically correlates with the lower inflammatory state of the body. Um, if I moderate alcohol, <clears throat> not excessive. If I watch out for carbohydrate intake and don't do that excessively, I get more vegetables, uh, fish oil, that helps. Um, when I was on vacation, I was scuba diving and I found the highest HRV scores I've ever seen was after I got done scuba diving. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research on the diving reflex. So I did a lot of work then after the subsequent days in the pool at the hotel we were staying in. I put the um, 
um, snorkel on and went in and, and basically sat under the water for, for five minutes. That had a positive effect. <clears throat> and then I said, what if I just, you know, dispense with the snorkel and just, uh, you know, hold my breath underwater for like 20, 30 seconds. I did that for like, you know, a minute in total. And that improved the HRV dramatically. So again, that's measure of vagal output. Again, I'm, I'm seeing it as, as ventral vagal because I chose to do this as soon as I wasn't thrown in the water. But I chose to do that. So if, a lot of this is if, again, the psychology of it is if somebody forces, you know, holds your head underwater, that's a different story than if you do it yourself. But there seems to be something about the, the engagement of that diving reflex. And so then I'd put just my face in the water and that had the effect. And so what I'm advocating to some of my patients who are highly stressed, I'm uh, a patient this morning I spoke with who had an active fever and she, her heart was racing and so forth. You know, I suggest, okay, putting her face in cold water, splashing cold water on her face to try and engage this vagal reflex. Um, some people find out like a cool shower uh, on the face will help. Maybe not so much the body, but more the face. And cool water is below like 55 degrees. So it doesn't have to be 32 degrees, but just cool. And then there's some other uh, uh, meditative type reflexes. So if meditation is something that you know resonates with you, that you can do, that you, that you enjoy. Um, from my understanding, there's about maybe 10, 15% of people that find meditation more irritating than, than calming. And so in those cases, something like a Shinrin Yoku, where you um, spend time in nature, or somewhere that you find is calming, you know, by, by the water, something like that, and just have a quiet time, you know, be it, you know, a spiritual exercise where you reflect or, or pray or read or something. Um, and then exercise, the idea that um, in, in polyvagal theory, that if somebody undergoes a, a bad event, if you can take action, if all you can do is run for your life, it's therapeutic and healing. And so in, in, I know in Britain, they, during the battle of uh, Britain, when they were being bombed by the, by the Germans, that a lot of families took their kids and set them away out in the countryside to be safe. They studied these, these children that stayed in London versus ones that were sent away and from the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And pretty much universally, everyone who was sent away to be safe had far worse health, mental and physical outcomes later on in life than the ones that stayed with their family. So there's something, uh, unfortunately, the social distancing and so forth kind of negates this idea of social engagement. But if one can be around people or if you can take action in a way that you feel in charge and in control, have a, have a sense of agency, that seems to be very healing as well. Um, and yeah, along these lines, the concept of agency, I know, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, John Sarno in Healing Back Pain, he talks about Adler's experiment with rats where he um, injected them, I believe it was with a virus that produced uh, tumors. And so he injected one group, which was the control group. And then he had two other groups of rats that he divided up and gave them both the injection. And then he put them in a cage with electrified floor where they got zapped for a certain duration of time. And the only difference between the two groups was one group had a doorway that they could escape out of and one didn't. And they both got the same noxious stimulus. And then they studied the three groups to see what happened. And in the control group, about 50% of them got the tumors. And then the other two groups, the one that the electric shock happened to that they could not escape, could not take action on in any way, about 75% of them got the tumors. And the other group that was the group that got the same amount of you know, bad you know, electric simulation, but could escape, only 25% of them got the tumors. So the, the state of this seems to be that if you can take action, that and lowers the stress response in your body and that your immune response to virus improves dramatically over the group that nothing bad happened to in the first place. So you, I was wondering, you know, talking with people that perhaps going out and if, if, if it makes you feel good to go out and buy toilet paper, buy, you know, the bulk, if that gives you a sense of agency and control over the situation and allows your nervous system to calm down and, and your, your immune system to work on fighting viruses, then that may be the best thing you can do. <laughs> you know? We're going to need a lot more toilet paper. <laughs> so, you know, you know all, we, all we have to fear is fear itself. It seems to be somewhat true. You know, if we are constantly scaring the wits out of ourselves, we're literally lowering our defense against virus. And so, you know, relax, take a breath. You know, a lot of meditative exercises based on breathing and, then, you know, the same thing, my experiments in the water and so forth. The diving reflex may be an ancient reflex of perhaps we're back in the womb to some degree. You know, is there something calming about that? It, it seems to be. 
And so well, it makes me wonder is a, fe- a fetus must be heavily parasympathetic dominant, I would think. Yeah, I, <clears throat> you wonder if the first sympathetic, you know, activation is when we take our first breath, you know. Yeah, you know, that, that's in the, the crying, you know, that elicits because before that, yeah, we're kind of in a, in a subdued, you know, sedated state, I would assume, you know, dreaming yeah. and, and so forth. So, yeah, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, you know, you know you know, you look at the universe and at different scales, you know, and it's almost at different sizes, you know, and is, is if our perception is external to us and seeing threats everywhere, you know, our cells seem to respond similarly that they think a threat is coming externally. And it's, so it's causing this inflammatory response. It's focused outward, you know, and the viruses are intracellular. And so it needs to work inside. And our, you know, is our, you know, antidote to this, to focus internally, to focus on our parasympathetic nervous system, to, you know, to, to work on sleeping and our digestion and in, in the insides. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. It's, it's something, you know, contemplate just philosophically. So. Well, th- thank you so much. This has been, this has been awesome. I think uh, uh, we probably should do this again. In fact, I already have an idea in mind. I'll share with you in a little bit. <laughs> I have an idea in mind of something else we can do that's along these same lines, uh, but I think it'd be interesting. Anyway, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this and I, hopefully it helps clear up some, um, some muddy areas for people and they really start to understand how important this stuff really is to health. Yeah, this, this is the, the cutting edge of, of you know, psychoneuroimmunology and you know, mind-body healing and can you separate one from the other I don't know that you can, you know, any, yeah. any good healer is going to incorporate all of this and just, okay. Yeah. You know, tell me more, you know, what, what, what new models, what new ideas do you have, you know, how can we get better results? So. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks doc. I want to thank Dr. Christopher Meyer once again, for giving up his valuable time to speak with us. As he mentioned, this is truly the cutting edge science in mind body medicine and our understanding is expanding every day. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, strangers, or anybody else you can think of. We truly want to educate everyone to understand that chiropractic is so much more than just back pain. Since we're under quarantine, we're going to try to deliver several episodes each week. I don't want you getting bored when this is such a great time to learn. So on that note, we're going to get back to work and we'll see you back here next time. Take care.